0: Welcome to the Family Tree Magazine Podcast, the show from America's number one genealogy magazine. I'm Lisa Louise Cook. It's January 2019, and we're going to talk about how to make this year your most organized year ever. We will kick off this episode with a quick look at the events that impact your family history in This Month in History with Family Tree Magazine editor, Andrew Cook. And then author and Family Tree University instructor, Gina Philibert Ortega, We'll be here to explain why research logs will keep you organized and aren't as boring as you think. Shannon Combs Bennett's going to be here with another edition of DNA Deconstructed. And this month's best website for tracing your family history is one that you might not have heard of before, but it's going to give you access to over 80,000 digitized books. And finally, in our Stories from the Stacks segment, we're going to visit with the Mid-Continent Library's Midwest Genealogy Center. As always, there's a lot to cover, so let's get to it. First up, This Month in Family History with Andrew Cook.
1: This month in 1892, Ellis Island opened its gates for the first time, and Irish teenager Annie Moore became the first immigrant to pass through the port. Over the next 62 years, Ellis Island would process more than 12 million immigrants, making it the largest port of immigration in the country. Ellis Island served as a replacement to Castle Garden, which had been used by the New York State Government to process immigrants since 1855. The federal government recognized Castle Gardens facilities were inadequate and so set out to build a larger station to meet the demand. Indeed, immigration to the United States exploded in the 1890s and early 1900s, peaking in 1907 when more than 1.25 million immigrants passed through Ellis Island's gates. Closed in 1954, the Immigration Center is now a museum operated by the Liberty Ellis Foundation. Visitors to the museum can view the island's facilities and learn about the immigration process, plus find records of their ancestors who stepped off ships in the island's port. You can also search a database of Ellis Island passengers at libertyellisfoundation.org.
0: In this January 2019 episode, uh, we're talking all about getting yourself organized, right? Getting everything pulled together together. Uh, to be just an effective researcher this year. In our feature segment, I've invited Gina Philibert Ortega to the show. Now, Gina has been a longtime Family Tree University instructor. She's also uh, an accomplished author and a genealogy researcher. And she is a whiz at research logs. So here to talk more about how getting organized and using research logs can pay off in your genealogy research is Gina Philibert Ortega. Hi, Gina.
2: Hi, Lisa. How are you today?
0: I am doing great and wonderful. Um, I love this topic because it's one that many people never delve into, but I think they should. <laughs>
2: yes, yes.
0: Yeah. Tell you us know, why it, it's important.
2: I really see this as one of the foundations of research. You know, I think too often we get kind of so excited by what we can find quickly on websites that we forget to kind of take a breath, slow down, and document what we find, and also what we don't find. To me, this is a topic that might seem very simplistic, but it's really important to your ongoing research, but also what you end up doing with that research.
0: Yes, and you hit a key point. And it's something that oftentimes the new researcher doesn't think about. It's documenting what you find and can prove, but it's also documenting what you don't find. So yes, how many of us have gone back over the same location twice, right? And it's just a waste of time.
2: It is. And you know, it goes back to getting excited and doing, you know, thinking of all these things you could look at, and doing those searches, and maybe saving them to your computer, but then not doing anything with it. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, time goes by, life goes on. And when you come back to it, you say, now, what did I find? What do I know? What do I not know? And you do end up wasting a lot of time. uh, You know, and that's just something we don't have, right? We're all busy. Exactly.
0: And you want to get the most accomplished that you can in the shortest amount of time, because we never have enough. So let's take a step back and just describe for us, what is a research log? What does this animal look like? Is it in one particular software? Or does it have a lot of different looks?
2: You know, research logs really are as diverse as the genealogists Mm -hmm. out there. Because to me, I always tell people, you need to use what works for you. Now, for me, that means using a Microsoft Word or Microsoft Excel spreadsheet. It's about having either a spreadsheet or a table where I have columns where I list a date, an event, the source citation, some comments, But that's not for everybody. Some people use some of the new technology we have, like Trello, for example, and that allows them to customize in a way that allows them to bring in images and websites, and they like the look of that. You know, some people might use Evernote. There's all kinds of ways you can do this. I mean, I know people who just use pen and paper, and that's Mm -hmm. fine. Mm -hmm. To me, what's important is we're going to show you all the different ways you can do this. But in the end, it's got to be a way that you're going to keep using it. You're going to open it or start it when you start your research, and you're going to close it down when you're done with that research session. So it doesn't matter what I use. What matters is what are you going to continue to use?
0: Yes, and I know you teach your students about this in the Research Logs Made Easy course that you teach. It's a three-day course with Belmature University, and I imagine one of the first things that you do then is knowing that it can look different ways, it's really figuring out which tool fits the researcher best and then having a plan about what's going to go into the tool and how to be consistent with it. Don't you think consistency is really half the battle? If you're consistent, then it's going to pay off in the long run.
2: I think so. And that's why I always tell people that it doesn't matter what I use. It matters what works for them. That consistency is going to come when you feel comfortable with something and and you like the way it flows for you. And so to me, research means that you go to whatever website or if you're at the library or whatever, that you have your research plan where you have your stated goal, you know where you're going to look, and then you sit down with your research log and you document all of that. And you document what you find, what you don't find, and you make comments about it because at the end what should happen is you have a really nice research log it's all filled out and you can take that information and create a narrative
0: yes and you you just made a good point that it goes hand the research log goes hand in hand with the research plan and really having a plan is just a piece of the puzzle you have to have a way to document it along the way so you can see how the puzzle's all coming together, give us an idea. Now, there are different kinds of research logs, right? What what would be some examples of different kinds of research log?
2: So, um, you know, it matters the project, right? So a lot of us might just be researching one person. And so I tend to be very simplistic with that. I might just use Microsoft Word and put together a table with four or five columns in it. But when I do a larger project with several people, like sometimes I'll take quilts, friendship quilts that have lots of names, and I'll throw those names in an Excel spreadsheet or another spreadsheet program, and then I will go ahead and use that as my research log. But, you know, like I said before, you could use some of the new social tools, you know, to to create a log that also almost tells a story. So you know, that's an option too, whether that's Trello or Evernote or some of the others. So to me, it really depends on what are you researching? What do you want from that end product? And you just go from there.
0: Right. I I know I use Evernote and I create, I have template notes that kind of break out the research plan. So I can just reuse those over and over as I'm creating a plan for a new project And then my research log is in there as well. So it's all in one place. And I think, you know, you mentioned that some of the new tools and the benefit of those is the fact that they synchronize across your devices. So you want to have this research log with you wherever you are, right?
2: Absolutely. And that is the benefit to today. I mean, you and I have both been around a long time in the world of genealogy. Yeah. And I remember many, many years ago, when a research log meant that you downloaded and made photocopies of a form that you found on Family Search, for right. example. Now, you could still use that. There's nothing wrong with that. But You know, there is some drawbacks, and one is that it's not everywhere that you are, and that you got a lot of paper copies, most likely. So, the nice thing about research logs today, and with some of the tools we have online, is that it does allow you for that customization. And it does allow you to add items that aren't just text. So you could add an image of a census uh, form, for example, or a photo. And that's something we couldn't do before.
0: Yeah, And I love that. I'm a very visual person. So that means a lot to me. And it, and it sways, you know, which kind of tool I'm going to use. Before I let you go, I'd love to have you share with us. What's a story within your own research of, that kind of illustrates the point? of why this is really why it really matters to use a research log.
2: You know, this story really to me uh because I am the kind of person that does a lot of research and I quickly forget because it's not in front of me. Right. And so I was researching a couple and the guy had this really interesting history. I mean, he had really been a bigamist, but that's another story, but Uh, He was on his third or fourth wife, and he uh, moved out of the state probably for obvious reasons. And you know, he lived in a few states, he actually died in quite a tragic way. He was an early uh, airplane pilot Mm. and did a lot of these um, acrobatic shows, and he um, crashed Mm. so. I had done a lot of research on this guy. I must have spent years documenting his life in various you know, newspapers and documents. And So I had it all finished, and someone on Ancestry questioned uh, one of the documents, and they came up with something in New York State. The guy was from California, but he did live uh, – well, he got married in New York. And she said, this is this couple, and you ha- don't have it and I said, well, because that's not them. It was the same name problem, and it's, it's understandable how that gets confusing, and so she would not believe me. So I pulled out those research logs, and I went and created a narrative based on those research logs, and I was able to show how that was not the same guy and why. Now, To be honest, if I didn't have that research log, I would not have remembered that, and I would have had to recreate quite a bit of research. That's the beauty of the research log, is you can just go back, look over your notes, and it's all right there.
0: You know, as you tell that story, it really makes me realize that the research log is just a greater extension of the source citation, isn't it?
2: Oh, it is, definitely.
0: Well, fantastic! I mean, as you can hear, it's it's going to pay off dividends in your research if you use it because it's going to help you along the way, and it's also going to help you down the road when you have to recall and put back together your conclusions. Gina's class is called Research Logs Made Easy. It's a three-day course, so not a huge time investment, but one that's definitely going to pay off. Um, it's going to be at Family Tree University look to the show notes for this episode of Family Tree Magazine podcast, and you'll find the link for the upcoming classes. We know you're all listening at different times throughout the years. And so whenever you hear this, head to FamilyTreeMagazine.com and to the Family Tree University section, look for Research Logs with Gina Philibert Ortega. Thank you so much, Gina. It's always great talking with you.
2: Thanks, Lisa. I appreciate it.
3: everyone, it's Shannon Combs-Bennett here with your DNA Deconstructed segment for January. This month I'm talking about how to simplify and organize your DNA test results. While the O word can be overwhelming to think about, organizing your DNA results really is not that complicated. Just like all other forms of organization for genealogy research, it simply takes time, patience, and the commitment to keep it up. For the last one, that's often the downfall for most researchers, and trust me, it gets me too. It helps to understand that being organized will help you with your analysis and keep you on track for your DNA research goals. Most will want to organize and track the same types of items. So for example, here are three things you may want to consider. First off, testing information. If you test at more than one company, or are collecting results for more than one person, you will need to keep track of each company you test at, along with the usernames and passwords for those people and companies. I can't keep track of all that information in my head since I log on to each company differently, so I'm sure you might have difficulties too. Needless to say, having an organized list for this information is crucial to access the data. Matches. If you test at more than one company, you will need to keep track of who you match where and what information that match provides. The data could include if they match you maternally or paternally, how close of a DNA match you are, if they have a tree at the company, do they match any surnames you're researching, or a whole host of other information. What's important is the information you are tracking will help you with your research. So customize it as you see fit contact information. You will need to keep track of how you are corresponding with anyone whose test you one manage, along with the matches or researchers you are corresponding with about DNA research. Even if you only use the internal message system the company provides, you should make note of that. This way you remember how you contacted someone, even when you have to put your research down for an extended period of time, but also so that other researchers in the future know who you were working with. Depending on your project or what you want to do with the DNA results you're collecting will depend on how you store it. I have a PC and I love using Excel spreadsheets for everything. However, that is not the only type of organizational spreadsheet tool anymore. Think about if you want to have it on your desktop or if you want to do your organization in the cloud. Having your spreadsheets online can be very helpful. I do this a lot when I'm working with other researchers who either do not live near me, or we just cannot get our schedules to match up to meet in person. This way we can look at the results online, make changes and additions as we see fit, and don't have to worry about sending each other the latest changes. It's there, saved, and safe in the cloud. Dropbox, Google Sheets, and OneDrive are the most common ways to share information online. There are other options too, but these are the most user-friendly ones and are already used by a wide variety of researchers. There are also great user guides and blog posts out there you can search so you can learn how to use the programs a little bit better. However, if you still prefer a different program, that's fine. Use what you feel comfortable with. I am one of these firm believers in, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. If you use a spreadsheet system, stick with it, even if it's simply creating a table in your favorite document program. Well, that's it for this month. I hope you got some interesting ideas and tips and tricks on how to organize that DNA. See you next month.
0: Well, in this best genealogy website segment, I've got one of the websites on the 101 best websites for tracing your family history that you might not have heard of, but you're going to be happy that you did after this segment is over. It's all about genealogy gophers. And here to talk to us more about it is the principal developer of the website. It's Dallin Quas. Hi, Dallin. Hi, Lisa. Thanks for coming. You have a really fascinating site here. It has an interesting history behind it, and I'd love to kind of just introduce folks to it and help them figure out how to get the most out of it. Tell us, what is Genealogy Gophers?
4: So Genealogy Gophers is like Google Book Search, but just for genealogy books. Uh, We focus specifically, uh, we actually don't support a full keyword search, but we do a great job of searching names, dates, and places. So you can search for approximate names, uh, nearby places, uh, date ranges, things like that.
0: Wow. And, and that's something I'm always teaching about in, in Google Books is how to use the search operators and, and maximize it. But you guys have that special approach that this really is genealogy focused. So you kind of know what people are looking for, the names, Ex- dates, and places.
4: Yes, yes, exactly. And there's a lot of really incredible uh, information in genealogy books that, that's hard to find a lot of times.
0: So clarify for me, are we talking about books that are specifically in the genealogy subject, or are we talking about books that would be interesting and uh, applicable to the genealogist's research? Or is it both?
4: It's it's a little bit of both. Let me tell you, our books come from uh, FamilySearch. So the same books that you can search on genealogy gophers, you can also search on the FamilySearch book search. Uh, But we have a, a, a more Google book-like search. You can see the little, as you do a search, you can actually see the page snippets where the matching text is found. So it makes it really easy to scan through a list of search results and see if this book is something you want to investigate more closely. Uh, you don't have to, at Search you have to, you get a match on a book and you say, well, maybe that looks interesting. Then you have to download the book and then you kind of have to search through the book. You don't have to do that here. We'll just, uh, just like Google Book Search, we'll just show you that little one inch high snippet uh, from the page in the book.
0: And you know, that is such an advantage. I mean, because you're trying to make the most of your time and being able to kind of quickly skim through and, and really spot what you need. That's excellent. When you right. say that you're tied to Family Search, now I know you host, you know, you let me ask, do you digitize books or, and is it strictly family search books? Are you adding other things that you think people will also
4: need? So currently it's just family search books. We've got about 80,000 books from family search. And, uh, these are all books that are in the publicly available, uh, that they have let us uh, put on the website and search. Um, we're also though looking into, uh, Getting a bunch of books from archive.org, which also has uh, a large collection of genealogy books that are also freely that are freely available.
0: Oh, absolutely. So you probably have to host them. You have to get the digital file onto your website.
4: Yes, we do. Yeah, Ah. (laughs) that's exactly right.
0: And there was a point back in your history, because this is all, you know, something that you started up, and there was a point in your history where you, you weren't sure if you to stick with it. And people might have heard that and then might have gone, oh, okay, well, I, I guess I'm not going back there. But tell us, you're alive and well, are you not? Yeah,
4: yeah, we are. We're alive and well. Uh, I started the site back in 2015. Um, Family Search said that, they, that a license to their books could be available, and I looked at their their search, and I thought, you know we, we really people really deserve better than this and, uh, and I knew that Google was doing a search the way that they were doing. It. I thought why don 't we just apply the same kind of technology to genealogy books and so I did that, but it costs a fair amount of hosting dollars to to host eighty thousand books and all the digital images on a on a website, and so we never ever made any money. I was trying to do it based on just ad supported, and uh, finally. Um, about in 2018, I said uh, that I just can't keep supporting this anymore, and so I was going to shut it down. And I put a blog posting up there saying, "Sorry, it's been fun, but uh, uh, we can't just keep we can't keep doing this." And I had a bunch of people uh, respond to the blog post saying, "You know, wow, we've we really love your site. We've broken through brick walls with this site. Is there anything, any way you can keep it up?" And uh, one of them suggested a freemium model. Um, actually based upon the the family tree magazines, uh, model where you can see so many, uh, articles, uh, over a period of time. And then after that, you need to, you need to buy something. And, uh, and so we thought we'd try that. And so I made it so that you can see up to three books a week for free. And then after that, if you want to see more, um, more books than that, um, you pay. It's either it's it's pretty low cost. It's either three dollars for a month of all you can access, or you can pay twenty dollars for an entire year of all you can access. And enough people are doing that that it's uh, we're breaking even now. So we're we're staying online.
0: Well, that's fantastic, and that's a small price to pay for the benefit of better search. And you know, I'm always preaching to people. It's it's one thing to have a wonderful collection. But that doesn't get you very far if you don't have a good way to search it. And so tell us about that, because I'm looking at gengophers.com, and Mm -hmm. I see, you know, search fields, which is nice. We don't have to worry about search operators, we can just go in and enter information that kind of mimics the experience we have on some of the big genealogy websites.
4: Right. Right, so yeah, so you can enter the first name and the last name, and then uh, we have an exact button, so if you want it to be exact, that's fine, but by default, uh, we will search for names that are similar to the names that you've entered, and especially when you're OCRing old books, this is very important, uh, because uh, the OCR on old historical texts is not perfect uh, by a long shot, so, so that's why we, we do the the similar name matching, um, and then we'll. You can also say, you know, uh, S- um, Smith or Cook. There's a very common name, mm-hmm. so let's uh, let's narrow that down by a place uh, or by a date range, and uh, we'll look at places that are near that name on the page, or dates that are near that name on the page, or each, sometimes we'll even look at uh, places in the title. Maybe it's uh, maybe it's Smiths in Alabama, uh, but we find a, we find a Cook that's also in Alabama. So we can uh, give that back to the user.
0: That's great. Now, one of the challenges we, we run into sometimes is when we put in a first name and a last name, you get results and the letters match, but they're actually the last name that you put in shows up as a first name or vice versa. Right. Does this have the ability to kind of I know when you put it in the first name field that that's going to show up only in the first names in the text, or is that just asking a bit much?
4: <laughs> well, we're trying. We're trying. Uh, you know, we have some artificial intelligence behind the scenes that mm-hmm. tries to distinguish between first names and last names, but it's not perfect. But that's why we show the snippets so that uh, if you put something in and you see, oh yeah, that's a last name. It takes you it, as humans. we we have great cognitive ability to tell these things yes. uh, at glance. And so you can look at that snippet of text at a glance and say, I can I'm gonna skip that search result.
0: And I can't emphasize enough, folks, listening, why this is so valuable because I'm I'm running a search right now as Dallin is talking to us. I looked up my great grandfather and uh how quickly you can scan these little snippets. Looks like what we're looking at here, Dallin, is uh perhaps the title of the book that's hyperlinked. I can see kind of a, a cutout of the, yep. the paragraph on the page where he yep. shows up and it's doing a nice job of also finding that there might be a C Burkett. When I'm looking for Conover Burkett, um, it recognizes that, you know, C might still be something I want to look at because it's followed by the correct last name.
4: Right, right. Yeah.
0: Any other yeah. tips and tricks that, that you want to recommend to folks so that they can get the most out of using the site and finding what they need?
4: Yeah, so I would start exactly the way that you did, Lisa. Just enter in a first name and a last name and see what you get. And if you get too much, then go back and narrow it down with a date or a place. A lot of, these, a lot of times the books don't have very many places uh, in the book. And, and uh, since it is pretty quick to scan through, you'll, I think, have a better, better chance of finding something that's interesting to you.
0: Excellent. Well, uh, the site is genealogygophers.com. Uh, what's on your wish list, Dellen, for the future? What would you love to do more with this site?
4: Well, like we've already talked about, I would love to start looking at uh, um, the books on archive.org and bringing those into the site.
5: Mm-hmm.
4: And then uh, at some point, I've even thought, a lot of times people have books uh, in their own libraries and maybe they'd like some way to uh, some place to host the digital copies of those books and make them searchable. So I thought about maybe making this as a service that uh, you could upload your own books and search those just like you're searching the books on Gen Gophers.
0: How many books? Did you already tell me how many books there were?
4: Currently, we search about 80,000 books. Yeah.
0: That's amazing. And genealogy focused. So unlike something like going to uh, Google Books, you're really narrowing the field to the top of the tier that the genealogist might be interested in.
4: Yep. That's right.
0: Excellent. Everybody check it out. It's com. We'll have a link in the show notes. And Dale and hey, I'm so happy to see the uh, site is moving forward. And thanks so much for giving us one more way to search a really amazing collection at FamilySearch.
4: Well, thank you, too, Lisa. It's a pleasure to talk with you today.
0: Every library holds treasures that are unique to them and found nowhere else or found in a very unique assemblage at their location. In today's stories from the stack segment, Cheryl Lang, who's the manager of the Midwest Genealogy Center at the Midcontinent Public Library in Independence, Missouri, she's here to tell us about their unique offerings for genealogists. Hi Cheryl.
6: Hi there. Thanks so much for having me.
0: It's great to talk to you again. I know I've spoken at your library. We did an all day seminar there. And uh, you you know, your library is just a haven for genealogists. Kind of give the folks listening an idea. How do you compare in size and scope, just in generally to other genealogy libraries across the country?
6: Well, we like to say we are the largest freestanding public genealogy library in the United States, but it also depends, too, on how you're counting. Are you counting the number of books on the shelves? Are you counting how many people come visit? So... It's just a matter of we have all of these materials and we have about 10,000, eight to 10,000 people um, per month come in and visit us and research and work on finding their family history. Yeah, whatever the number is, it's way up there, you know,
0: (laughs) on the first hand of uh, genealogy (laughs) libraries. And when you go to your website, you can really see. The, the real dedication to genealogy that you don't see at a lot of public library websites. Um, you guys kind of have your own little area of the Mid-Continent Public Library, correct? On the
6: website? Correct. We are a branch of the Mid-Continent Public Library and there are 31 branches altogether. Oh. The uh, other 30 branches have your John Grisham and and everything else. Mm-hmm. And our branch is nothing but Uh, 52,000 square feet of genealogy resources. So that's what makes us different uh, inside. But the Mid-Continent Public Library has invested a lot of time, uh, about the last, oh, 50 years of collecting materials. And then finally in 2008, opening this uh, large building for all the resources.
0: Oh, and It's absolutely beautiful. And the website is one of uh, Family Tree Magazine's 101 mm-hmm. Best Websites for Genealogists. But let's mm-hmm. talk about people who want to come and visit in person. Give us an idea. What are some of the real standout collections that you're excited to share.
6: Okay, well, needless to say, since we're a library, books are very high on that on that list. Um, we have everything from personal genealogies that people have published to county records. From all over the United States with some international as well. We have uh, city directories. We have microfilm and microfiche. People think uh, everything is on the internet, and uh, it's not. (laughs) So there's still a lot of film and fish that to get copies of those original records, uh, you can do that here. We have things like Kentucky tax lists, for example. We have those that are on microfilm, and there's only a couple, three other places in the United States that have those original records on film and available.
0: Yeah, I think a lot of people feel like oh, microfilm, it's all gone now. A microfiche, it's all gone now. But it's not. No. I mean, there's just not just by enough a long hours. shot. Well, there's not enough hours in the day for you to digitize everything all at
6: once. Right? <laughs> True. That and copyright yeah. has a lot to yeah. do with it as well. But uh, we have all of these available on site so people can come. And so um, I just, uh, you know, things like that, people forget that those are available to get on to some of the bigger, large databases and say, okay, now I've found that somebody's on a tax list in Mason County, Kentucky. But to get a copy of that, and it's like, okay, that's fine. You know, they're the in- from the index. But to get a copy of that original record, you need to find that and get that sourced. Right.
0: And I imagine books are the same thing. That There are some books that you just do not have the copyright, the permissions to be able to digitize mm-hmm. them. So you've got to go and get them In person. When somebody is planning a trip to the Midwest Genealogy Center, um, I imagine that the course the website, not everything's online, but your collection is indexed online, it's cataloged online, (laughs) right? Um, What do I do at the website to prepare? Because I think one of the challenges anywhere you go is you don't know what you don't know, you don't know what do they have Mm -hmm. that might just be unique that I really need to grab while I'm there.
6: You're exactly right with that, Lisa, because when you do that research trip, you do need to prepare. And the online catalog that we have, it has everything in it already. What I tell people is prepare by making that list of counties that you're interested in, the surnames that you're interested in. Get onto the online catalog and do a search for, I don't know, say Polk County, Missouri, and then it will bring up all of the resources that we have here, whether it's microform, whether it's books, whether it's maps, and everything on Polk County, Missouri. Then you can look at each of those items and find out what might be helpful to you. And then the other thing I always tell people, we have about 200,000 books here on the shelves, And about 10% of those are available for checkout. So that means that they're also available for interlibrary loan to your local library anywhere in the United States. So look at the ones that have an available for checkout and don't bother with those. You can interlibrary loan those to your home. That's a great point.
0: In fact, oftentimes when I'm preparing for a trip, you know, I'll even do the old-fashioned way, you know, print out some of the pages, and, and then you have to go through, and, like mm-hmm. you say, prioritize. Is that available only there? Is it, is it online? Can I get it another way so that your time there is is super focused? What are some of your favorite collections, things that you, just you personally, if you had, you know, 20 extra minutes, what would you go
6: and dig into at your library? The books. The books yes. are just the, <laughs> the richest, I think, because they're so many of them are not indexed, mm-hmm. um, and those indexes you know the sense are not indexed they 're not going to be available online. Um, and then so many of them have the copyright, so they're not available. I I seriously, when I'm doing research here in my own library, which isn't often enough, but um, it's so hard. I tell you, I used to research here one entire day a month. I used to take a vacation day and research here, and I have slacked on that, and I need to get back to that. But I would go for the books because those are the things that – So many times they can be one-of-a-kind books. Sometimes people publish family histories and they publish 20, and that was 50 years ago. So they're just not as available, and so many of them are still not indexed. So it takes time to go through them.
0: Absolutely. And I'm thinking finally, one of the things that's unique at your libraries, you do do ongoing education, you have events that people can come and participate in. Tell us a little bit about your programming.
6: We have uh, free classes. We have beginning genealogy, um, learning about census records. We get uh, into some of the ethnic research of African American. Uh, We celebrate Black History Month. So we have all kinds of different classes, and they are uh, listed on our website, and you can register for those free. They're usually about an hour long. So it doesn't take a whole lot of your time, but it fits in with a research trip maybe. And we've had, in the past, an annual spring seminar uh, that you came, and I think you were one of our first presenters, yes. Lisa. Yes, That was so wonderful. We'll have to have you back again sometime. <laughs> the seminar this spring is not going to be um, happening because we are in the midst of a construction project Ooh. for a new community hall. So it will hold up to 400 people, and we'll be going back to that this next year then.
0: Wow, how exciting. I mean, it it is such a beautiful facility. And it sounds like you're just doing everything you can just to welcome more and more people there and, and help it be a hub for their genealogy research.
6: So when people come visit us too, then one thing I do suggest is that they purchase a library card. Anybody in our taxing district gets a, quote, free one because their taxes have paid for it. But a research card can be purchased for six months for $32.50, and then people can take it back home with them. And then a lot of times they'll have access then to, we have about 50 genealogy and history databases that are online and available. And that would be accessible with that library card. Oh, fantastic. Is that something
0: that they could, if they can't get there in person, can they purchase a library card online?
6: When they get here, then they can purchase it. Uh, They do have to visit us because uh, we need to have them be one of our uh, visitors then. Got it.
0: Well, if you want to learn more about the Midwest Genealogy Center at the Midcontinent Public Library, head to mymcpl.org. And if you put a slash genealogy, you're going to find all of the terrific resources that Cheryl's been sharing with us. Cheryl, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. I love seeing you. We, we run across each other all the time at the various <laughs> national conferences, and I hope to have you back It's here so in the
6: fun. Well. Thank you so very much. It's so fun to share what we have. And we just look forward to people coming in and visiting or go through our website. There's a lot of things on the website uh, that can be of some help. A lot of people, I think one of our favorite is um, some PDF fillable family history forms. And people like those. And those are very helpful. So if you can't visit us in person, come online. Absolutely. In fact, when you get to the website, just click
0: resources and you'll find those family history forms. Wonderful to talk to you. Thanks so much, Cheryl. Thank you. Hey, you guys, this just in. There's a new Family Tree Magazine course starting up that's going to help you finally tell your ancestors' story. And here to tell us all about it is Vanessa Wheeland. She is the Dean of Family Tree University. Hi, Vanessa. Hi, Lisa. Hey, Vanessa, tell us about this new course that's about up.
5: Okay, so I was really anxious to get this out to you all. Um, if you want to tell your ancestor story this year, you want to be thinking about what you're going to need along the way. And so we have this workshop that we've developed. It's called Tricks to Tell Your Ancestor Story, and it's kicking off February 4th through February 10th. And this is going to help you tell your ancestor story in any format you want to, whether that be a written blog or a short story format or a research paper or even non-written, you know, things like uh, videos and photo book. And what this course is going to do, this workshop, is it will help you to figure out up front what your goal is and how you want to tell this story. You know, all of our ancestors have stories. It's up to us to be able to tell them and keep their memory alive. So we're going to help you figure out a way to organize your materials along the way so that as you're working on this story, you can put it together and accomplish the storytelling by the end of this year.
0: Hey, that's a great goal. I mean, it's a goal we all have as we're researching. It's not just finding it, but it's actually being able to share it in a way that's kind of um, compelling. And you know, Vanessa, I think of it as like, You know, when you're going to do a puzzle, you got to see the picture on the box, and you got to open it up and see how many edge pieces there are. I mean, there's a little bit of prep and awareness that has to go into making sure that when you get to the end, that the final picture is really what you want. And uh, I imagine that's very much the same, whether you're doing a video or, as you said, a book or uh, there's so many different ways to tell stories. So Nancy Hendrickson is teaching this, and you said it's February 4th through the 10th of 2019. And if by chance you're listening to this after that time frame, stop back in at the Family Tree Magazine store because uh, they rerun these popular courses on a fairly regular basis. So you can always jump in and participate. Hey, thanks so much for giving us the heads up on this course, because I think it's the perfect timing so that we can really reach our goals this year. Thanks, Vanessa.
5: Thank you so much, Lisa.
0: Thanks so much for joining me for this January 2019 episode of the Family Tree Magazine podcast. It's the monthly show from America's number one genealogy magazine. I'll have links on the show notes webpage to everything that we talked about today. And you can find the show notes at FamilyTreeMagazine.com slash podcasts. Again, I'm Lisa Louise Cook. Check out my monthly Lisa's Picks column in Family Tree Magazine for the hottest genealogy tips, tools, and locations. And I invite you to take a listen to my podcast, the Genealogy Gems podcast, which is available at genealogygems.com and of course for free through your favorite podcasting app. Until next time, have fun climbing your family tree.